I, uh, I'm going to do something this morning that uh, in my 30 plus years of preaching, I have never done before. Um, I'm going to repeat a message that I've given here at this church previously. Now, it was seven years ago, so I doubt if any of you will remember it. Some of you weren't even born. But uh, <clears throat> it's, uh, and it's not because I didn't have time to write a new one when Luke asked me if I would uh, preach today. Uh, I'm preaching it again because it links in so well. It just dovetails completely with this whole series on piercing the darkness. And uh, he's been talking about lights, being us being lights in the world, about making disciples as we go. But if we're going to do that, we first have to be disciples. We have to understand what that means. We can't share light that we've never received. So that's really what this message is about. During that uh, strangest of years, 2020, when we were all in lockdown and wandering around with masks on for a year, uh, I wrote my memoirs. I decided it's something which I uh, was triggered by another book I read you know, back in the early 2000s. And it was something which kind of thrown around thinking I'd like to do it. Well, I had opportunity during the, the dead months of 2020. So I told my life story for my grandchildren and my children, talked about growing up in England, my school days, you know, my faith journey, all the things that make up a memoir. And I included a variety of appendices at the back of the book, excerpts from journals I kept from like vacations we've been on. Um, I included all the quotes, the you know, stupid and cute things that our kids had said when they were little, put all those in there. I put the, all the family tree history that my father had uh, done, and so I included that in the book. And one of the appendices that uh, is in there is this message, because I considered it one of the best messages I have ever heard. And I say that not because I'm tooting my own horn, because this is not my message. I mean, it is somewhat now, but this is... Uh, this is a message that I heard Pete Briscoe give, the son of the late Stuart Briscoe. So as I say, it wasn't, it wasn't too to my own horn by including it. But I wanted my kids to hear what I considered to be an incredibly important message about faith. Um, now I've had to adapt it, obviously, because I had to make it my own, present it through the lens of my own life. But credit for the idea and for the outline goes entirely to Pete Briscoe. So with that said... Let me pray, and we'll dig in. In the words of an old chorus, I learned, thank you, God, for sending Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that you came. Holy Spirit, won't you teach us more about his lovely name? Amen. Matthew 7, verse 13, Jesus is speaking, and he says, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. If you are a follower of the Lord Jesus here this morning, then you have stepped off the multi-lane highway of life that leads to destruction, and you have stepped onto what Jesus calls the narrow path, the narrow road. It doesn't have the neon lights and the pizzazz of the highway we've left, but the path is clear. It's well-trodden. Many others have walked it before us. Nonetheless, any new path that we take uh, is strange, a little bit unfamiliar, and sometimes a little bit scary, like walking through a path in the woods. You know, the path is clear, 
But you know, what's in the woods? You know, is there a bear out there? Am I going to, you know, is it safe? And so there's, there's always a little bit of uncertainty on this path that we're on because it's leading us, we don't know where. We don't know what twists and turns it will take in our life as we walk, walk along. Well, I want you to join me in your imagination this morning as I walk along that wooded path, admiring the size of the trees, smelling the rich, damp earth. And walking along, I do what we all do when uh, we begin a journey in, into the unknown. I wonder, where am I going to go? Where is it going to lead me? Now, you know, years into my life, I can look back and say, I had no idea that I would be living you know, on both sides of the Atlantic twice. We have crossed back and forth twice, and it's like, well, who could have predicted that? Certainly not me. So there is this, this unknown piece to our path. And every now and then, <clears throat> um, the path forks, and we have to make a decision. And reaching a fork on an unknown path forces us to make a choice. Do I go this way, or do I go that way? And unless you've got a map, you just guess. You know, we go with our gut. Okay, something's telling me I should go this way, you know, but you don't really know. Uh, but on our path through, uh, uh, on my, on my, this, this narrow path that we're going along, we reach this place, uh, and then the fork in the road, and lo and behold, there's signs for us. And there's one that points to the uh, left that says the pleasing God, and there's a sign pointing to the right that says trusting God. And we're like, okay, we have to choose between one of those two things. And I'm like, come on, what is this? I, wanna, I, I don't want to choose between pleasing God and trusting. I want to do both. And so, uh, but I can't. I can't walk two paths at once. So I weigh it up, and I'm like, okay, I am going to do, I'm going to go this way. I'm going to go down the pleasing path because, well, I'm a Christian. That's what I want to do. I want to please God with my life. So that's, uh, that's where I head out. And I start down the path, and I've not gone very far before it widens out, and I catch up with a host of other people who are all going the same way as me. And I take this as a good sign, because I conclude that I must have chosen the right path. Otherwise, there wouldn't be so many other people going my way. And then when I round a corner, there's this big banner hung across the path, and it says, Trying Trail. And I think, hmm, I get it. Trying Trail. This is the path on which we try and figure out how to please God. That's what this path is. This is trying, child. I'm trying to figure that out, which is what I want to do. I want to please God. So I keep going. And a few twists and turns later, I am amazed when I come to a section of the path that is lined with booths, little tents, like a market. And there in the booths are tables, and there's people behind them. And they're, they're not just selling stuff. They are there for the express purpose of offering advice on, uh, on how to please God. And I think, well, how great is this? I'm not, I'm, and there's people here to help me do the very thing I want to do. And the sign over the first tent says Bible reading. And I want to learn how to read the Bible to please God. So I go up to the table and it's covered with every possible translation of the scriptures you can imagine, and then some. And there's Bibles aimed at every segment of society. There's Bibles for men and women and children and teens and college students. And uh, there are people behind the tables and they're eager to help me. And one tells me about a marvelous read through the Bible in a year plan. 
and gives me a little leaflet about how to do that. In fact, there's several of those. And so I get a little bag, and like you do, you go to a conference, you get a little bag, and you stuff these little pieces of paper in. And then there's somebody else, and they're saying, oh, there's this wonderful, marvelous plan about reading through the Psalms in a month. You could do it every month. And I'm like, oh, so I take that one, goes in the bag. And uh, another one tells me how often I should be reading the Bible. Every day would be ideal, but more than once a day would be even better if you could do that. And then there's somebody who's telling me um, when I should be reading the Bible. Is it, should it be in the morning? When one person's saying, well, in the morning, you need to start your day with God. And then somebody else says, you know what, but I think the evening is best because then when you, when you fall asleep, you've got God's word on your heart and on your mind. And, uh, and there's another one arguing for it should be somewhere else during the course of the day. And, and there's even somebody there telling me what position I should be in when I read my Bible, sitting, standing, whatever. And, and so it, you know, it's all a little overwhelming. So after a while, I take a step back and I say, can somebody please tell me just, just how to please God while I read the Bible? And they look at me and they scrunch up their eyes and they're like, we just did. But I, I'm all confused. So I, I leave the booth and I move on to another one. And the next one has a big sign over it that says giving. And this one's empty, all right? So there's nobody in this one. <laughs> and uh, so, but I want to learn how to please God with my giving. So I stop and I go in. And one person talks to me immediately about the tithe principle. How in the Old Testament, God commanded his people to give one-tenth of everything that they produced to him. And so that was, the, that was what we should be doing as, as Christians. That's how we please God. But then somebody else says, no, 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 that was just the Old Testament. In the New Testament, it talks about tithes and offerings. So it should be more than 10%. So, you know, and, but they didn't tell me if that was before tax or after tax. So it was a little bit unclear on that. And then there's another person who says, no, no, if you're going to be a giving, if you want to please God as a, as a Christian at giving, you have to be a cheerful giver. And uh, upon explanation, that means apparently I give a lot, just lots. That's what cheerful givers do. They give lots all the time. Um, and like before, I finally I step back and I say, look, look, will one of you please just tell me how I please God with my giving? And they kind of tip their heads and they're like, oh, we just did. But I, I, I'm not getting it. You know, I'm, I'm shaking my head. And so I step out and uh, the next booth is dedicated to parenting. And this table's covered with books. You've got more books than you can shake a stick at. And it says, how to raise kids that make God look good. Well, who doesn't want kids like that? And there's one there, toddlers for Jesus, growing godly children, college students for Christ, the power of homeschooling. And uh, just, just dozens and dozens of books. But I have the same experience in this booth as I had in the last two. They, you know, they're all arguing different, different points of view, but nobody's telling me how I can please God as I raise my children. And this is repeated over and over as I visit the different booths down the side of the path. There are booths for serving others and spiritual gifts and intercessory prayer and reaching the unreached and small groups and hospitality and prison visitation, short-term missions, addiction recovery. And as I move on, I just get the same response. Nobody is giving me a definitive answer on how I'll know if, what, if I do what they say that I will be pleasing God. They won't tell me. It's just opinions and advice. And it dawns on me that perhaps I misunderstood why this was called the trying trail. 
Because how am I ever going to know if I've tried the right approach? I'm trying this one, I'm trying that one. How do I know if I've got the right one? <clears throat> Done enough. Followed the right advice. How am I going to know if I'm pleasing God? After what seems years, maybe it is years, of going from one booth to another, I finally I had enough. And I'm tempted just to plop down on the side of the path and let somebody else try and figure it out. Uh, and there are a lot of people who are doing just that. They're just sitting down because, uh, you know, they are like me. They've discovered that the trying trail is miserable. It's miserable. It's hideously frustrating. It's demoralizing. It's discouraging. But before I sit down, I remember that this path wasn't my only option. Back where the path split, I could have gone the other way. So I decide to retrace my steps and go back to the split in the path, and I read the sign again that points the other way, the one that says, trusting God. And I figure, well, it can't be worse than the path I just took. So I start off down the trusting trail, and I immediately notice that it's much narrower than the trying trail, and the path is a lot less worn, which is a little disconcerting. But as I round the first corner, instead of finding yet another banner, another booth, another sign, what I see is a person. And the person is Jesus. And Jesus, as soon as he sees me, he says, yes, I am so glad you've chose this trail. And I'm like, is this the right trail? And he says, yes, this is the right trail. Jesus, I'm so confused. I mean, I want to please you, and I want to trust you, but I couldn't follow both paths. Why is this the right trail? And he says, you know, I'll explain it to you along the way. And he takes me by the elbow and he turns around and we start walking down the path together. And he says, Paul, it's the right trail because the trusting trail is at the heart of the Christian life. And I say, but what about all the things I discovered on the trying trail, the reading the Bible, praying and serving and giving? He says, you know, no, you don't need to panic about all of those things because I'm going to be with you now directing you and teaching you as we go along. The whole way, I'm going to be with you. So take a breath and let me tell you how this trail works. The trusting trail is really very simple, he says. As we go along, now and again, I will ask you to do things. All you have to do is trust me and say yes. There's no debate. There's no negotiation. I ask you to do something. You listen you trust me, and you say yes. And I'm like, that's it? He says, yes, that's it. Isn't that great? So I'd like to invite you to walk with me as I share some of my journey with Jesus down the trusting trail. And I want to do it in conjunction with some others who have walked the path before us, characters that we're all familiar with, characters that are found in that uh, chapter on trust, on faith in Scripture Hebrews chapter 11. That's the faith chapter. If anybody says, well, the faith chapter, they're talking about Hebrews chapter 11. And each of the characters mentioned in Hebrews 11 gives us a different facet of what it looks like to live by faith, to be trusting God. And living by faith is the Christian life. How do we know? Because it's right there in verse 6 of Hebrews 11. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. And pleasing God is what we want to do isn't it? But without faith, it's impossible because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists. So Jesus says to me as we start off, he says, do you believe I exist, Paul? 
And I'm like, yes, Jesus, I do. He says, then I'm going to ask you to trust me, because when you trust me, you also please me. You make me happy. And although you are unable to walk two paths at the same time, you can, in fact, accomplish both of those things at the same time, which is another reason why the trusting trail is better than the trying trail. So we walk on. And after a while, Jesus turns and says to 19-year-old me, he says, Paul, I want you to stop what you're doing with your girlfriend. I know you're not sleeping together, but you're getting close. But I am a holy God, and I want you to live a holy and pure life. Will you do that for me? And in embarrassment, I look at my shoes and I say, yes, Jesus, I will. And I do. And my girlfriend, who I've been seeing for a couple of years, who I'm convinced I'm going to marry, doesn't understand at all what's going on. Why the sudden change in me? And uh, several rocky months later, our relationship shatters when she tells me she's pregnant because she's been sleeping with another guy. And had I been sleeping with her, I would have assumed that that baby was mine and I would have married her. And who knows what path my life would have taken as a result of that. But, you know, the relationship was gone. I was devastated. Of course, who wouldn't be? So I say to Jesus, I say, well, what's the deal? What is the deal? You said that if I trusted you, everything would work out. He said, no. No, 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 no. I didn't say that. I've never said that. Anywhere. Search the scriptures, you'll see. What did I say, Paul? You said that if I trusted you, you, it would make you happy. But how, Paul, remember what I said about there being no negotiation, no debate about what I ask you to do. I ask you to do things, you listen, you trust me, and you say yes. It really is that simple. And it means trusting me and saying yes, even when things don't work out. And then I see someone coming along the trail towards us, and I say, who's this? And Jesus says, oh, that's Abel. Remember his story? It's here in Hebrews 11, in verse 4. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. And by faith, he was commended as righteous. And when God spoke well of his offerings, and, God, uh, and by faith, Abel still speaks, even though he is dead. Jesus said, I asked Cain and Abel to make an offering to me. Not that it was the offering that was important. It was their heart that was important. It's always their heart that's important. And Abel listened and trusted me, and he did what I said. He said yes, and he made an offering from his heart, and I was pleased with him. And it all worked out. Oh, wait, no, it didn't. It didn't work out at all for Abel. You say Cain did not make an offering from his heart, and he got so upset that his brother's offering was accepted and his wasn't, that he murdered his brother. I know there are a vast number of people who think that if they do what I say, everything will work out. But I never said that it would. And you don't have to read very far in my word to figure that out. So Paul, I want you to trust me even when it doesn't all work out because when you trust me, it makes me happy. You please me. Some of you here this morning are perhaps confused because maybe Jesus had asked you to do something, is asking you to do something, and you've said yes. You've trusted him with it. And it's not working out. And Jesus says, will you trust me with your job? 
when you don't get that raise, when you get let go after years of faithful service and they just ax you? Will you trust me when you're being singled out and treated unjustly? When you get injured, when it doesn't all work out, will you trust me? To the parents, he says, will you trust me? Even if your kids don't turn out the way you hope. But I want my kids to turn out well. Well, of course you do. We all do. But it's not our job to produce perfect Christian children. It's our job to trust the Lord Jesus. Because even if our kids make horrible choices and go off the rails, if we trust Jesus, then we make him happy. He's pleased with us as parents. So I keep walking down the trusting trail and I see someone else coming towards us. And I look at Jesus and he says, that's Enoch. It's here in Hebrews 11:5. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. There it is right there. All right? Enoch pleased God. And once we've passed Enoch, Jesus said, I gave Enoch the unpleasant task of preaching against the sins of his society when he lived. If you read the letter of Jude, you will find out what his message was. But telling people something that they don't want to hear, telling them that I'm offended, in fact, by how they're living, will never win you any popularity contests. As every prophet I have ever appointed found out pretty quick. So Enoch was not a popular guy, but he was commended as one who pleased me because he did what I asked him to do. So Paul, I'm gonna ask you to do things at times that are gonna make you unpopular. But I want you to trust me. So later, Jesus says to my 23-year-old self, who's in the USA, visiting his fiancee, Carol, before going back to England to attend Bible college, which I really didn't wanna do, but that's what God had kind of kicking and screaming. I'm like, okay, okay, I'll go. But I thought I was gonna go in the UK. And he says to me, I don't want you to go home. I want you to marry Carol now, right now, before college, not after, which is what we were thinking. And I want you to get your education here in the US, not the UK. Will you do that for me? And I say, yes, Jesus, I will. So Carol and I announce our change of plans to her parents with whom I am staying. I've been in the country three weeks. And her father asks that question that all fathers ask, so how are you going to provide for my daughter? And I say, well, I'm going to college and she is going to work to provide for both of us. <laughs> and the words lead and balloon come to mind. <laughs> and uh, they kicked me out of the house, all right? Been in the country three weeks. I'm kicked out of the house. I end up staying with a friend of Carol's. And uh, my mother, when I call and announce what we're doing, bursts into tears on the phone because I've only given him six weeks to find tickets and somehow get my dad to get leave from work and, and uh, I'm, I'm not coming back and it's just this big, you know. And so I'm not making me very popular with Carol's parents. My parents are upset with me. Um, and in fact, Carol's parents don't stop with kicking me out of the house. They spend the next six weeks up until the wedding date uh, waiting up for her when she comes home because she's in between apartments and uh, she is uh, uh, subject to you know, being in their home right now. So they wait up for her. And every night for six weeks, 
One night they, they plead with it, don't do this, don't marry this, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll support you, we'll help you. The next night they'll scream and yell and, and, uh, and just swear and, and verbal abuse, constant. She never knew what she was gonna get when she got home every night, six weeks. An hour before the wedding, they tell her, if you back out right now, you have our full support, we're right with you. Don't do this. But we got married. And we moved away. And then Carol's mother, who she called every week, spends the next 25 years, 25 years, every week, telling her to divorce me or leave me. Because she did not gain a son, she lost a daughter. And uh, I talked to Jesus about this. And I let him know, I'm not really, uh, I don't really like being so unpopular with my wife's family. <laughs> and he says, I know, I know. But when you trust me, even when you're unpopular, it makes me happy. I'm pleased with you. Parents face this all the time. When your 15-year-old son or daughter comes home and announces that there is a co-ed party at the lake house, no parents present, and you know there's going to be alcohol or drugs or both, and so you do what any loving parent would do. You say, no, you can't go. And the opinion polls on the kind of parent that you are in your home take an instant nosedive because they think now you are the worst parent in the world. Um, and it's hard because you feel like you are the only parent who is saying no. And your kids are hating you for it. And you love your kids and you want them to like you. You don't want to be horribly unpopular with your own kids. But you say no and even though it makes you hideously unpopular, you are doing the thing that God has asked you to do as a, as a loving parent and you are lovingly saying no. And so God is pleased even though your kids may not be. Students face this in school too. The teacher leaves the class for some reason while they're gone, something happens. Something gets broken, something is stolen, or who knows what. And uh, they come back in and of course everybody's innocent, as all children are in the classroom. Nobody did anything, nobody saw anything, nobody heard anything. Um, but you want to honor the fact that Jesus has asked you to be honest, to tell the truth. And so you uh, go to the teacher and you let them know the truth about what went down. But somebody finds out or somebody sees and for weeks afterwards your friends ignore you, your classmates are mad at you, you get called names and you're teased and you're picked on and you go home at tears on the bus, in tears as you ride the bus and Jesus says, I am so proud of you, I am so proud of you. You did what I asked, you trusted me even though it has made you unpopular but by trusting me you have made me happy, you've pleased me, well done. So we continue down the trail, Jesus and me side by side, and I see someone else coming, and it's Noah. Hebrews eleven seven. by faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, catch that, not yet seen, never seen anything like this, in holy fear, he built an ark to save his family. And after Noah has gone by, I say to Jesus, Jesus says to me, I mean, he says, I asked Noah to do something that as far as he was concerned, seemed completely impossible and didn't make a lick of sense for him. I asked him to build an enormous boat in the middle of nowhere, not by any lake or sea, 
just in the middle of nowhere, for him and his family to be a refuge and for all the creatures of the earth when the rains and the floods came. And he had no idea what I was talking about because he'd never seen rain. He was clueless about how many animals would be coming. And it was going to take him the best part of a century to build this enormous boat in the middle of nowhere. But he trusted me. And he said yes. And he did it. So Paul, I'm going to ask you to do things at times that are going to seem impossible, that are not going to make a lick of sense. But I'm going to ask you to trust me anyway. Can you do that? And I swallow and I say, yes, Jesus, I can. And sometime later, Jesus says to my 27-year-old self, well, now that you're done with college, I want you to go back to the UK where I want you to serve. And I point out to Jesus that mm, I have nothing in the UK to go back to. You're asking me to go back to something. There's nothing there. I said, I have no home. I have no job. I have no income. I have no car, no ministry, no leads. I have no prospects. I have no friends. I have nothing. There is nothing for me to go back to in England. And I have a one-year-old son. And I have a wife who I need to support. And where do you want me to serve? Can you at least tell me that? And Jesus says, do you remember what I said you needed to do as we travel along this trusting trail? And I sigh, and I'm like, yes, I remember no questions, you want me to listen, trust you, and say yes. And he just nods and he says, Paul, I want you to trust me even when it doesn't make a lick of sense. So we go back to England, and it takes the best part of a year before I land a job as a youth pastor at a church. And we move nine times in 11 months, living out of two suitcases with a one-year-old. And it's the hardest nine months of my life up to that point. But we always had somewhere to stay, you know. There was, we always had a roof over our heads, and we never went hungry. And God proved to be faithful. He gave us the necessities of life, even though it was miserable. And moving that often with a little kid is difficult. But he proved himself faithful. So we continue down the trail, and we round a bend, and I see Abraham coming towards us. And I don't know how I know it's Abraham, but I do. And we read in Hebrews 11:8, by faith Abraham, when he called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. And Jesus says to me, did you catch the, the key words there, Paul? Abraham obeyed me and went, even though he did not know where he was going. Sometimes I'm going to ask you to trust me, even when you don't get all the details. And I'm like, but I like details, Jesus. I really do. I love the details. <laughs> he says, I know, but you don't need them all. I want you to trust me even if you don't have them because when you do, I know, I know, it makes you happy. All right, there you go, he says. And so sometime later, Jesus turns to 39-year-old me who is now still in the UK and I'm now pastoring a small church to which I am wholeheartedly committed that I love. I love the people I love the community. Uh, the church which has grown 50% in the last four years, from 60 to 100, because churches in England are small. Um, and he says to me, I want you to take your wife and your three boys, and I want you to move back to the US. And I'm like, wait, what, what, what? But I thought I was gonna be here for 20 years. I'm committed to long-term ministry. He says, I know. You know, it doesn't make any sense, Jesus. Things are they're going so well here. He says, I know. 
And it's gonna make me really unpopular with the elders and the congregation. And my kids aren't gonna to wanna to be plucked out of school. He says, I know. Really? Really, this is what you want me to do? He says, yes, it is. Well, I, this is so huge. I'm gonna take some convincing on this one. So we arrange for the kids to be taken care of and Karen and I fly to the US for what we call our spy mission. Like Moses sent spies into the land. We come to spy out you people to see. Basically, <laughs> is this... Is this where God wants us among these hostiles? No, no. Um, is this where God wants us to be? Are we, are we completely out of our mind or are we really hearing from God? And God did give us some details. God, Carol got offered a job on day three after we arrived in the country. Offered the same job she'd been doing when we were in college, which was working for State Farm, selling insurance. Day three. Now, we didn't know at the time, but when we get back, we find out we have to have proof of income for anybody to even consider allowing us to come back into the country for U.S. Customs. So she got offered a job. Brian and Mary Stanky said we could live with them when we first arrived for as long as we needed to stay there, all five of us, because it was them and they had a big enough house and we could do that. We were given an old car. I mean, it was a 1998 Oldsmobile, but it was somebody I never met said, if you come, you can have this car. I'm like, okay, somebody's given us a car. Um, we got to, the kids were given a place in a local school. Normally, you have to live somewhere first so that you know what school you're gonna be in. But we met with the area superintendent and he just broke all the rules and said, yeah, your kids can go there. Wherever you end up, that's fine. We're like, well, okay. So there were some details that were given. So we flew home, convinced that we were hearing correctly. And we let the church know that in six weeks, we are gonna be up and moving and going to the U.S., which created all kinds of issues for us. And I, the, what, the miracles that God had to perform to actually get us here is a story for another time. But the main detail we weren't given was what I was supposed to be doing. But of course, I'm thinking, we're stepping out in faith. We listen to God, and so there's gonna be a silver platter, and he's gonna, here you go, Paul, here is this wonderful, high-paying job in ministry somewhere, and you, and you can serve. Yeah, you know, that didn't happen. Um, but then if you go back and read the story of Abraham, it didn't happen for him, him either. You know? He leaves his home and his family and his people and he makes a, goes off to this land that God's gonna tell him and then when he gets to Canaan, God says, hold it, just look around. This is it, you're here. Well, it was full of other people and there was a famine in the land. And he's like, this, this is it? You know? So yeah, arriving and then not having everything served up on a silver platter is kind of consistent with uh, the way God works. And I thought the 11 months when we went, to, went back to the UK were hard. For the next three and a half years, three and a half years, I worked two or three part-time jobs trying to you know, figure out why am I here? I had ministry irons and ministry fires, they all fizzled out, nothing materialized. Uh, some churches kept me stringing along for a, a few weeks. I had one iron in a fire for a year and it, and it just fizzled out. But during those three and a half years, the long, dark night of the soul for me, it was just, it was horrible. Um, I learned to trust God in a new way. Because every time this part-time job was ending, I chauffeured, I painted, I worked uh, uh, UPS, I did all kinds of stuff. Uh, every time this job ended, another one would just pop up. And even though before we knew it was coming, you know, we were panicking, this one's ending. You know, what am I gonna do next week? Because this one ends on Friday and then God would provide them. So after three and a half years, I stopped panicking because I realized God's my employer. It's not this company, this person. God is the one 
who is my provider? And he provides to this person, that company. And, but that, that may change. He's the one who says, I'll provide for you. And like he did for that 11 months, where we didn't have a home, moved around, living out of suitcases, he still provided for us. And he did it again for that period. And, uh, and I've completely lost myself in my notes. So give me a moment. So, we didn't get all the details, but we followed. But if you read the story, Abraham didn't get all the details either. Even though it says by faith, Abraham, you know, he didn't actually enter the land by faith. You know, he got there, but it was going to be generations later before the people, which is now a nation, because God had promised to make a great nation out of Abraham, the nation came back and moved into Canaan. Abraham was long dead, never got to see it, all right? He, uh, and it may be true for us. Maybe some of the things God asks us to do, we're like, that doesn't make any sense. Why would you want me to do this? Well, maybe it's not for me. Maybe it's for my great-grandchildren because I did this, my kids did that, and their kids. And so now God's orchestrating something over here because I said yes to something he wanted me to do, which they couldn't have done if I hadn't done that. That's how God sometimes operates. I don't need to know all the details. All he asks me to do is listen trust him and say yes now we could keep walking down the trail this morning because there's a lot of other characters that we could meet and talk about in Hebrews 11 we can learn lessons from Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses Rahab, Barak Samson, Gideon, Jephthah David, Samuel but the point is made although we may learn different lessons from each of them the one thing they all have in common is they all said yes when God asked them to do something and they trusted him. Even if they didn't like his timing, when it didn't all work out, when it made no sense, when they didn't get all the details, when it seemed impossible, they still said yes. So I want to close this morning by asking, which trail are we on? Are we on the performance trail, the trying trail, or the trusting trail? Because it's never too late to go back and take the one that accomplishes what we really want, which is trusting and pleasing God at the same time. And please don't misunderstand me. Uh, I'm not saying there is anything wrong with reading your Bible or praying or giving and serving. Of course there isn't. But if our whole focus is simply on doing those things because we think by doing them we're pleasing God, we're missing the point. It's not by doing those things that God's happy with us. All right? We're not checking boxes over here. What pleases God, the core of our Christian faith, is a trusting relationship with Jesus and walking with him through our days. Yes, doing these things, but that isn't what makes him happy. It's trusting him that makes him happy. Two weeks ago, Luke spoke about some of the ways the modern church has taken its eyes off the ball and... Uh, being sidetracked into trying to make converts, at least through the, you know, his early years, and mine too. Trying to get people into church, trying to get people to pray certain prayers, trying them to get to agree to a certain uh, list of doctrinal statements, as if those things in themselves imparted life, eternal life. They don't. Saying words on a, you know, repeat after me, that's not giving you eternal life. It's the relationship that gives you eternal life. 
Remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees of his day? They knew their scriptures, right? Forward and backwards. He says to them, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. So there's nothing wrong with the scriptures, but we, we don't get to know the scriptures so we can say we know the scriptures. They are to lead us better in our relationship with the author of life. Because, you know, life is only found in one place. Light is only found in one place. And Jesus never told anyone to go shed light by doing witnessing, which is what was drummed into me like it was into Pastor Luke, and for good reason. Because if you make witnessing something you do, well then there's times you're doing it, and there's times that you're not doing it. So, you know, it's like a light switch. It's on, it's off. It's on, it's off. That's not what Jesus said at all. What he actually said was, you will be my witnesses, all right? And being a witness is not something you can turn off, right? The only thing you get to control is the quality of the witness that you are. Because to everybody, all the time, as a follower of Christ, I am a witness. That's how it works. Alan Redpath used to say, you are either a missionary, you're a witness, or you're a mission field, because you aren't a witness. So you're one or the other. But if you are a follower of Christ, that's what you are. So what kind of witness am I? And in order to be a better witness, in order for the, the light of Christ to shine brighter in me in this dark world, I have to remain vitally connected to the source of that light, Jesus himself. I have to be grafted into the vine so that his life can flow. It's not about me, it's about the vine. It's not about my light, even though Jesus said, you are the light of the world. Any light we have is his. It's just a reflection. Right? It gets bounced off us, if you like. He rubs off on us, you see. Moses' face shone after he spent time in God's presence and he came down from the mountain. And that principle holds true for us as well. The goal is not to end up with a glowing head like a nightlight, okay? That's not the goal. It's to be recognizable as disciples, as apprentices of Jesus. And that's what the early disciples were. If you read in Acts 4, when Peter and John are in the temple and they're speaking, and the, the authorities, you know, the Jewish authorities are saying, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and they perceived that they were uneducated common men, in the Greek, without grammar and idiots, all right? These are just, these are nobodies. But they, and, they, and they recognized that because of the way they spoke. They wondered, and they recognized they had been with Jesus. There was something about them that made the, these, these people reckon they've, they've been with Jesus. Well, that's the kind of life I want. And I'm guessing that's probably the kind of life you want too. I want other people. That's the witness piece. I want other people to see something of him in me. Not so that I can, you know, get my halo shined, but that's what, that's what I've been called to do in the life of faith. Reflect the one that I'm following and walking with. To get there, we have to learn to trust him. To listen, to trust him, and say yes. Because when we do, it makes him happy. So, as we pray, as we turn to prayer, I'm going to say, is there anything that Jesus is asking us to say yes to this morning? And remember what path we're on. That's the first question. 
But is there anything he's asking us to say yes to? So I'm going to give you 30 seconds of silence and invite you to just press your ear to the door of your heart and listen in to see if there's anything that Jesus has been trying to get through to you that we need to respond to and say, you know, I've heard, uh, I'm going to trust you and I'm going to say yes. So let's take 30 seconds to do just that. Well, Jesus, the things that I've been talking about this morning are much easier to talk about than they are to do because we live in a society that is driven by performance. Everything is a performance. How are we doing? Are we checking boxes? Are we doing the right things? And we bring that into our faith to our detriment because we think we're pleasing you because we're checking so many boxes when the thing that you are really asking for us from us is this walk, this trusting walk with you, where you tell us things and you ask us to listen, to trust you, and say yes. It's so simple that we shy away from it because it doesn't feel like we're doing enough. But that is what you're calling to us is. That's what makes us a witness in this world. So God, wherever we're at, maybe there's some here this morning who need to get off the trying trail and start walking down the trusting trail and learning that they can please you as they trust you. But those who are perhaps on that trail, we, there's always room for growth for every one of us to trust you more, to listen better, to say yes quicker. Father, this week, may our witness to you uh, be a little bit brighter because we are learning to say yes to what you ask us to do and who you ask us to be. And may we never forget that it's about the life in the vine. It's your life flowing through us as you walk with us every step of the journey. Hear us, we pray, because we ask it in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.